2 Corinthians chapter 2, the last time we were in 2 Corinthians was the week before Palm Sunday when uh, we were speaking about how Jesus Christ leads us in triumphant procession. He leads us in triumphant uh, procession. And um, when we we got to the end of that passage in uh, chapter 2, we see the question that the Apostle asks, Who is sufficient for these things? And I'd like us to begin reading from that point. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, at the conclusion of verse 16. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's Word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak... In Christ. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need us? Some do. Letters of recommendation to you or from you. You yourselves are our letter of recommendation. Written on our hearts. To be known and read by all. And you know that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us. Written Not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. But our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Amen. In this uh, section that began really with verse uh, 12 of chapter 2, Paul is continuing the theme of weakness. And in the same way that we we saw... um, uh, that we are weak but comforted from chapter 1, verse 1, through to the end of that chapter and uh, chapter 2, verse 4. This new section, uh, um, uh, beginning with verse 12, speaks to us about being weak but carrying on. And particularly being weak but carrying on when everything around you seems to militate against you carrying on. There's actually nothing significant about you carrying on when there's nothing opposing you. There's nothing significant about perseverance or endurance in the absence of opposition or the absence of trials. There are no medals awarded um, for perseverance through nothing. (laughs) A gold star for enduring a life of ease. Rather, the significance of carrying on finds itself in the circumstances that we face. The things that we struggle with. The things that we fight against. The things that struggle against us and fight against us and the Holy Spirit in us. Is that making sense? We, 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 we carry on, and the significance of carrying on is when others say we're defeated. 
when others doubt us, when we walk not in the light, but when we walk through seasons of darkness, with the only light being that guiding light of Jesus Christ in our hearts. That is where endurance, that is where perseverance finds its significance, carrying on in the face of things that don't want you to carry on. In the text before us, we see that Paul finds himself in a season where an entire church doubted him, or had in the recent past doubted him, and a substantial number within that church still did, such that it was creating division. They questioned his individual calling. They questioned his spiritual qualifications. They questioned his personal character. And consequentially, some of them even went so far as to questioning his gospel of Christ. To be fair, there are people in spiritual leadership who deserve doubt. I suppose at one level, we might say all of us, so far as we are human, so far as we are sinners, merit some doubt in ourselves. There are people in spiritual leadership who disqualify themselves. There are self-appointed apostles who say and do things that speak the truth to their lie of possessing any ecclesiastical authority. There are crowd-acclaimed preachers, yes, even some who may speak the truth, even some who may be labeled by others as, quote-unquote, sound or solid, who may have blessed even some of us present at various times, but who nonetheless say and do things in public and behind the scenes that are worthy of questioning may seem like red flags that may make us uneasy at best, grieved at worst, and sometimes even call into the question into question the propriety of such persons being platformed as they have been. In more extreme cases, the propriety of them continuing in pastoral or public ministry. There are ministers who are unknown, and perhaps it's best that they stay unknown, lest they publicly defame the name of Christ. There are individual Christians, regardless of uh, any church office that they may or may not hold, who wield or attempt to wield unseemly influence and authority within local churches, toxifying church life abusing leaders, members, and attendees in various ways, depending on the direction of their sinful inclinations and hiding behind, sometimes, theological principles, some sound, some not sound. Sometimes they will hide behind things like the image of God or possessing a new identity in Christ or being right with God by grace through faith in Christ. And sometimes it's other more niche doctrines that they will uh, put up as a front while their hearts are full of restless evil. In this fallen sinful world, even people who should provide refuge have sent others fleeing 
for refuge. Not unlike the religious people to whom the prophets, Jesus, and the apostles spoke. When we read the prophets, when we read Jesus, when we read the apostles and their strongest rebukes, always remember that they were not speaking those rebukes to a quote-unquote lost world outside the covenant family. Always, for the most part, unless we're talking about evangelistic sermons that are recorded in the book of Acts or evangelistic conversations that Jesus has in the Gospels, they are or a couple of rebukes to other nations. They are mostly talking to people who profess to have covenant relationship with God. In other words, people like you and me. There have been and are all sorts of abuses that hide behind spiritual offices, pastors, elders, deacons, and church members alike with nice theological sounding affirmations. And there are plenty of people who are worthy of our doubt. But that was not Paul in this situation. And that is not what I'm going to discuss today. I hope it's, it's, it's not you. Um, who is one of these abusive characters, one of these people who is um, uh, actively um, opposed to the stability of God's church, if it is, you must repent. If it is, you must turn. That does not honor Christ. How dare we pervert God's grace and our professed experience of it into selfish validation for our nonsense. We must confess our sins to God. We must be silent before His Word. We must make ourselves actively accountable to the fellowship of the church as a whole. And yes, seek out mature and godly brothers and sisters individually who won't be yes men but will help us and challenge us. All of that's very important. We've preached about abuse of various kinds before. We've preached about these type issues. But that's not this passage. There are times when it's wrong to doubt your brother or sister. There are ways in which it's wrong to doubt spiritual leadership and authority. What made people doubt Paul? When he was silent, they wanted him to speak. When he spoke up, they didn't like what he had to say. When he was with them, they wished that he would go. When he went, they couldn't understand why he went and wanted him to return. When he wasn't tripping over himself to pay them a visit after some abuse received on a previous visit, he couldn't get there fast enough. When the possibility of him finally making his way to them came up, a loud minority in the church actively opposed the idea and questioned who he was and what he stood for, and others were prepared to totally disregard his track record of consistent gospel witness and Christian faithfulness for slanderous myths that hurt not only Paul, but were intrinsically harmful and divisive to the church that he had planted. Some didn't like how he wrote. And so they doubted him. Others didn't like his personal appearance or how he spoke. And so they doubted him. 
We might infer from other letters, including 1 Corinthians, that Gentiles had prejudices against him because he was a Jew, and that Jews had prejudices against him because he was too much like Gentiles. For some, he could never measure up to the experience of Peter or the eloquence of Apollos. And then, of course, there was his own personal history, always lurking in the background even if it was unstated. Remember, he himself expressed it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The man who had actively persecuted the church of God, who was complicit in the murder of the first Christian martyr, who stirred up the first large-scale systemic persecution of Christians in the history of the world and cultivated a system of oppression and injustice that would spread across the Roman Empire to the destruction of many. Yes, he repented and he spent spent years in the background quietly learning, serving, and growing before he was fetched by Barnabas to become an elder in the church at Antioch. But he'd hopped around a fair amount, hadn't he? They might have thought. Never in one place for very long at all. Always on the move, purportedly for the spread of the gospel. But was it really? What if it was all based on his feelings? What if he moved around simply because he couldn't settle? Perhaps he caused problems wherever he went. And that might have been his fault, not the fault of the places where he left. And sometimes stuff happens and his plans don't work out and they would say he doesn't visit us when he said he might, but he writes us instead. And we don't like what he has to say when he writes, but we're mad that he didn't visit us to say it even though we would not have liked it then. In fact, we would have liked it less and both parties would have left feeling bad. Because of all of that, they ask questions like, is he sincere? Is he really spiritual? Is he really sufficient for the task? Even when dealing with legitimately difficult people, Christians should strive to typify the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is love. Yes, love which believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The Corinthians do not seem, however, to have consistently treated Paul in that way. Though the man who called himself the chief of sinners doubtless had legitimate things that could have been said against him, the accusations made by some in the Corinthian church were demonstrably false, utterly wicked, and completely inappropriate. They imperiled not only Paul's health, but the health of other individual Christians and the unity of the local church. How do we answer something as weighty as that? I don't know about you, but I feel the weight of that situation. How do we respond? How does Paul respond? What can we learn from his response? Paul does not focus further on their doubts, nor does he focus on himself. Although he does refer a great deal to himself 
It is always as though he were a lens through which to see Christ. A glass through which to see the power of the Holy Spirit at work in him. In the passage before us, he does not point him to himself to answer their doubts. He points to God. And he doesn't just point to God, he points to them. The very ones who are questioning him. The local church. These are the things that we see from the text. First, God sins. In other words, when Paul is sincerity and spirituality and sufficiency is questioned, Paul says, I didn't sin myself. God sent me. The text says, who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. This is not just something that we've taken up. It's not an occupation or a job that we have taken up where we've gotten some merchandise and we're going around knocking on doors selling it um, to people or in the marketplace. But rather, we are men of sincerity. Oh, that's not a criticism of any salespeople here this morning. But it is to say that salespeople do not have necessarily the reputation for sincerity. I say that because I know some of you are salespeople, and I love you very much, and I'm sure Paul does as well, and I know Jesus does, but the reputation of sincerity is, is not there. I mean, you, know, you, act, you have to act like you believe in the product. I speak as one who knows. I, I, my previous jobs outside of ministry were sales jobs. Do, do I believe in Easy Gym? Those of you who are around when I was working for a while one summer at Easy Gym. I cannot tell you when I last went to the gym. And trust me, when I started working at Easy Gym, it had been even longer. Years. Maybe if a hotel I happened to be staying in had some weights, I messed about. But it wasn't something I did. But I was passionately out there on the street telling people to spend $12.99 on a no contract, no joining fee, all-inclusive membership monthly with Easy Gym on Wood Green High Road with central access from buses and tube and all of that good stuff. No frills, just what you want, just what you need. Buy today because the price could go up tomorrow. <laughs> you want to buy now. Sorry, they closed. Um, Deservedly so. They really, really mess their people about. But um, sincerity. Did I believe that? Not with the, the strength that I believe the gospel. I believed that it would do people good to join the gym, I suppose. I wouldn't lie. Some of my colleagues lied. Do we have steam sauna? Easy Gym definitely does not have steam sauna. But, oh yeah, well, you know, we're going to look into that. We take our customer feedback very seriously. Total lies. Do, do you have nursery provision? It's easy, Jim. Well, if you, if, if, you know, if you bring your children, we can't turn you away. Um, maybe one of our staff can look after them. Nonsense. No, it's peddling, isn't it? You know, my other job at Next, men's saleswear consultant. And, um, um, you know, 
If someone asked me questions, I don't really actually know much about fashion. I got the job because I caught a thief and I needed a job and I leveraged that with the, the manager. But, um, um, you know, when um, I, I end up, you know, on the floor, some, someone asking me, oh, does this look good? You know, take them over to the expensive coats because that, you know, looks more quality. That's what you do, isn't it? You're peddling something. But Paul says, we're not peddling the gospel. We're men of sincerity. We believe it and we'll keep on believing it regardless of what we suffer, regardless of what we face, regardless of what opposes us and it. As men of sincerity, we speak as commissioned by God. So it's not that, that some, you know... Uh, sort of opportunity has presented itself for me to get rich quick or to make money or to, to you know, gain influence and power or anything like that. But rather, Paul is saying, God has called me, God has sent me with the message, and because I'm commissioned by God, I have to keep going even when it hurts me. And when people hurt me. And when people doubt. Because the gospel of God has saved me, and the God of the gospel has sent me. God sends. Paul doesn't leave it at that, though. He says God sees. God sees. Uh, we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity who really believe this, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. This means a number of things. Um, in the sight of God is an appeal to God sees and knows. You don't see and know everything, Corinthian church. You're filled with criticisms. You're filled with little noises murmuring in the background about, uh, uh, about whether I, I, I am called, whether I'm qualified, and whether I'm capable. But... But God sees and God knows. And for me, that's enough. The slander, the gossip, the attacks, God sees. God knows. And there's something special about being seen by God. Knowing that, yeah, God is watching means I'm accountable. That means that I need to be careful that means I need to be prayerful. That means I need to be balanced in an age of extremism. That means I need to, to, to anchor myself to the scriptures and to sound principles and to Christ-centered convictions. All of that, God sees and knows, means I need to be careful. I need to watch myself and the teaching. But it also means... That so far as I can stand before God in good conscience and discharge my duties, what other people say or think doesn't matter. What does God see? Does God see faithfulness? Does God see worship? Does God see a life of service to Him and a heart that is breaking for the salvation of the lost and the unity and purity of the church? That's what Paul is, is communicating. Even in that, that short line, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ.
Other people can say and do whatever they're saying and doing. We're going to speak in Christ in the sight of God. Of course, the irony is that the church at Corinth was actually accusing him of not being sent by God, not being um, uh, seen by God, and um, not speaking Christ or in Christ. And that's where you have to weigh the evidence. That's where you have to look at the track record of the Corinthian church, which not so long before this was actually doubting the resurrection of Jesus and the ministry of the Apostle Paul. That's not easy. Sometimes you have to take sides. But here's a man who has proclaimed Jesus Christ crucified, risen, and exalted. And here's a church that just a few years before denied the resurrection and was characterized by fairly visible immorality and injustice. Who are we going to believe? What is faithful? What is faithful to the gospel? Those are questions that we must ask. God sins, God sees, but the heart of this passage is God supports. The thing is, sending is active, but nonetheless, in and of itself, it, it, on its own, it's actually active at a stationary level. Someone stands and stays put, and they send, and they don't go, right? Someone sees, that can be passive as well. It's very nice uh, in the context of wider truths to know that God, see, that, that God sees, that He's all-knowing. But what does God do with what He sees? God sees you. What does He do with that sight? Well, in Paul's context, Paul's situation, he has confidence that God is with him. God has not only sent him, God not only sees him, but God is with him, supporting him, making him to stand. Paul asks, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? He uses the um, example of a letter of recommendation. How many of you have done letters of recommendation? You know, if you apply for a job, you need a CV, which has your qualifications, and there's going to be other people who you put down as your references. And the references are the people who write on your behalf. I'm not going to put you on the spot, but have you ever gone to someone that you would like to put, you da- to, to, to put down as a reference and they've said, I'm sorry, I, I, I simply cannot recommend you to this role. It happens. And it hurts. It, it cuts deep. Or you go to someone and they give you A blank piece of paper, basically. Write whatever you want, and I'll sign my name. That's a little better, isn't it? That's very nice. And then uh, some of you are humble, and so um, you know you'll you'll 
you're not as comfortable doing that. And, and, and some of you don't have that problem, maybe. You, you go to town, you're like the candidates on The Apprentice, um, you know, bigging themselves up, gassing themselves up to, um, to, to be the greatest um, titans of industry. Well, Paul points to the church and says, you are our letter of recommendation. So the letter... Let's break this down. The letter is the church, the local church. The ink is the Holy Spirit of the living God. Okay? You see that in verse 3? The letter is the local church, but before we get a letter, we need some paper and we need some ink. The ink is the Spirit of the living God. The letter is not written on tablets of stone but on tablets of human hearts. What human hearts? He says, written on our hearts in verse 2. So, the letter is the local church. And the glory of God in a local church that believes in the gospel of Jesus Christ and proclaims the gospel, the existence of a gathering of people who are worshiping Jesus... Whatever their flaws, whatever their failures, whatever their inadequacies in various things, there is glory in the local church wherever people who profess the name of Jesus Christ are gathered. We may not be able to, um, to fit in everywhere. We may have valid and genuine criticisms of other congregations, other churches, other traditions, or whatever. But there is something unique and distinct about people gathered in the name of Jesus. And so long as we have the, the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified, risen, and exalted, there is something to work with. That actually can be very encouraging. When we look out and we see a sea of problems in churches... What else is new? The New Testament. The letters to those churches. We appeal to the Word of God for ongoing reform and revitalization. Absolutely. But so long as those core foundational things laid by Christ and the apostles and the prophets are there, we actually still have something we can appeal to. Is that encouraging? God doesn't support nonsense, but God does support His messengers. God does support His people in faithfulness. And the Apostle Paul, astonishingly, considering all of the issues of the church at Corinth and considering all the abuse that he had received from them, he points to them and says, you're our letter of recommendation. You wouldn't exist if it weren't for us. You believe in Jesus because you heard about Jesus from preachers, including me and my colleagues. The letters written on our hearts, we carry you as brothers and sisters in our hearts, written by the Holy Spirit. We have union not only with God, but with you, our brothers and sisters. And so in our hearts, we are united and we carry something that recommends us 
local churches who are seeking to worship Jesus. That's a recommendation. There's much honor in a local church. There's much beauty in a local church. And so when, when, when he, Paul is looking for support, he, he sees that that support comes from God by means of a letter of recommendation, which is from Christ, delivered by the apostles, on paper of their hearts, with ink of the Holy Spirit, the result being local churches that proclaim Jesus, crucified, risen, and exalted. What other recommendation is needed? Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. So he can write to them strong things. He can write to them um, faithful things, kind things, but true things that they need to hear because he loves them and he knows that they are a testimony to him and his ministry. Then we see God makes sufficient. So God, God sends, God sees, God supports, and God makes sufficient. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God refers, yes, to what he has just said. We can confidently claim our authority, our strength, on the merits of our ministry or the fruits of our ministry, a local church that is proclaiming Christ in a dark world. But there's more that we need. The church cannot be our sufficiency. Because, let's face it, the church at Corinth exhausted Paul. They drained him. They afflicted him. In various ways, they abused him. So he has to find his sufficiency from somewhere else. If you're finding your sufficiency from some entity other than God, you're going to be disappointed. It's going to let you down. But rather, Paul goes to the Lord himself and the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, yes, is seen in the local church, which is a letter, a letter of love which is written by God and delivered by his servants. But... It also points us to verse 5, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. So the church exists because of God, not because of me, not because of us. The church is from God, for God, and perseveres through God, with God. He has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, speaking of the old covenant laws, the rituals, and not just the laws and the rituals themselves, which were beautiful and played a purpose, but the letter of legalism, the do this, don't do that approach that, frankly, to this day kills churches. Not of the letter, but of a new covenant, of the Spirit. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life.
So focusing less on, on the letter and less on the, 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 all of these other things, Paul is always, even when he's correcting sin as he does, uh, immorality and injustice and idolatry and all of that, it is not that he's putting them on blast, but rather it's that he's lifting up Jesus. The one who leads us triumphantly in triumphal procession and spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere, which is a good fragrance, a pleasant fragrance to those who believe in Him and is a bad fragrance to those who are perishing, those who, who just, their hearts are hard and they are opposed to Christ and His church. That is the beauty and glory of the local church. And our mission, our focus... I hope we can say even of our local church, especially of our local church, is to lift high the name of Jesus. There's so many other things that we could talk about. There are so many other things that we could talk to each other about and dispute about and tear things down, but we must lift high the name of Jesus. Do we have differences? Yes, but we lift high the name of Jesus. Do we have potential divisions? We could do. But we will not let our distinct distinctions and differences divide us, God helping us in Jesus by the Holy Spirit. Why? Because we want to lift high the name of Jesus. The fact of the matter is, we're very weak to lift high the name of Jesus. It's this hilarious cycle. We're lifting high the name of Jesus, and who's lifting us up? Jesus! <laughs> we can't hold him up. He holds himself up. He stands on his own two feet. Over Death, hell, and sin trampled beneath him. And he leads us in triumphal procession. And, and, and so we find our sufficiency not in ourselves, not in anything that we are, not in anything that we've done, not in anything that we think, say, or do, but in Jesus and all that he is and all that he has said and all that he has done, keeping the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified, risen, and exalted, portrayed in the elements of the Lord's Supper and baptism, in the context of a local church gathered around those things, we proclaim Him for His glory. So, doubt. How do we respond to doubt? Well, of course, doubt will afflict us from within and from without. Perhaps you have seasons where you doubt yourself, seasons where you doubt who you are in Christ. Are you doubting who you are in Christ? Perhaps because you've lost sight of who Christ is in you. That He's greater and His grace is greater than all your sins. Perhaps you doubt the purpose of the local church. So many people do this, going through various seasons of life, despairing for various reasons. Sometimes it's their sin. Oftentimes it's their sin. Sometimes it's not that. Sometimes someone else has sinned against them or someone has said or done something they don't like. And, and, and so they respond to that, but sadly their response to that, if it involves rejecting the fellowship of believers, is sinful. Even if that's a strong emotion. Doubting God's purposes in His people. 
and failing to see that we are all sinners, all of us saved by grace, all of us in need of a savior, all of us with things could be critiqued, all of us could lay claim to the title chief of sinners, all of us know our hearts, hopefully, if we're saved, born again of the Holy Spirit, we see where we fall short. Perhaps then we should be more careful to love one another, to be patient with one another, to be forbearing with one another, and indeed to forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven us. Do we ever suffer from things like imposter syndrome? Do you ever have that where just in life, I'm not talking about spiritual stuff necessarily, where you have a job and you just don't feel up to the task. You don't think you're sufficient. You don't think, and sometimes you thought you were sufficient. Like when you were going through uni and you weren't listening to the lectures because you knew it all and you were listening to disagree and then when you actually start applying that discipline, you realize you don't know it all. In fact, you really wish you had listened because you don't remember a thing he said. And he did have that unit in that module that time that would have really helped. You're just going to fail. And you tell yourself you're going to fail at life or you're going to just, you know, you take it a little too strong <laughs> at that point. You're not just going to fail this task. You're just going to, your life is going to fall to pieces. Sometimes you wake up at night and you can't sleep because you're thinking about uh, your inadequacy in some area. But then, if you have a letter of recommendation to go back to, that's an encouragement. Because here's someone in this field who wrote something nice about you that they believe is true. Some of you saw that... Um, um, some news I, I made this week about a book contract that I signed uh, for a publication to be made next year. Um, when I, over the, I've had that manuscript for years, collecting dust. That was my realm of academic study. So you know, that was something I was, I, I was really into. And I didn't think anyone would be interested in it. But then I started seeing people talk about these subjects, and I was like, oh, maybe they are interested in it. Maybe now is the time. So I started chopping it around, and someone said, ah, oh, it's too short. And I'm like, it's an introductory primer. It's supposed to be short. And then someone says, ah, oh, you know, it's, it's very, very clear and simple language. Um, uh, it, it really needs to be, but you have footnotes. You need to choose between being popular and being academic. And I'm like, oh, you know, but that's kind of the idea. I want, at a popular level, people to know where they can go and read more. And, and so I'm, I'm working through, but then I started to believe it. They don't, you know, maybe, maybe I am rubbish. My work is rubbish. It's not useful to anyone. So I'll just park it. And then a man I'd sent it to ages ago sent me an email. I've read it. It's very good. It's excellent. Write this publisher and use my name freely. I wrote the publisher. I used his name. They gave me a contract. When you're doubted, whatever the context it is in your spiritual life, perhaps it is Satan coming to oppose you and accuse you and throwing your sins in your face. Jesus says, you are righteous. Use my name freely. 
when, when there are people who are opposing you, tearing you down and tearing you up, Jesus says, I am able to make you stand. Use my name freely. When you're questioning yourself because of any number of circumstantial things or chemical things or clinical things or all sorts of turmoil in your life within and without and you begin to doubt who you are. Don't forget who Christ is who says to you, you are righteous. Use my name freely. So, so, so friends, perhaps you, you, you think Sometimes, maybe you this morning, maybe there's someone here who thinks too highly of, of themselves. You think automatically that you're Paul in the situation. You've rushed for vindication to what I've said, and, but your vindication you found on the altar of your righteousness and ability, not that of Christ. Jesus isn't telling you you're righteous if that's the altar you've gone to. You are not Paul in this story if you're appealing to yourself. You're the Corinthians. For all I know, you are in, in the depths of your heart worse than the Corinthians. I, you need to know that the job of accuser, of adversary, of enemy, of opposer, of Satan is already taken. He doesn't need any help. There's already a, a, a bad lion out in the streets of the Christian life seeking to kill, steal, and destroy. The church of Jesus Christ could do without you adding to his number. Don't automatically assume you're Paul in this story. You may be the Corinthians. But I hope, I hope that you can say as one who has found their righteousness in Jesus Christ... He has sent me. He sees me. He supports me. He makes me sufficient. Perhaps you have moments where you feel, and indeed you really are in the apostle's shoes. Your sincerity, your spirituality, your sufficiency, and yes, even your Savior are doubted. But you say, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that He is able Local church accountability is vital, but we don't need the world's approval or angry and self-righteous people's authorization to keep telling the world about Jesus because it's God who sins. It is urgent that people hear the gospel warmly and winsomely communicated out of a heart breaking for the world's salvation, but we don't need to perform for the gaze of any audience as though we're trying to sell something. God sees, and that is enough. It is good that we can be commended, but there is no higher recommendation than that of the Lord which is seen in the life of a vibrant Christ-centered church. It is wonderful if we are in good health, if we are strong, if we are capable, and if we are always competent in everything, but at the end of the day, everything else fails us. Our only sufficiency is in Christ. Christ is enough. For me, is he enough for you this morning? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
My heart is troubled when we find our sufficiency in anything other than Jesus. When we find our satisfaction in the things that the Corinthians were up to and not in the sanctified life which is ours by the Holy Spirit. Please help us to be unique and distinct, set apart, holy, righteous. Help us to stand. Help us to do so with conviction, with confidence. Whatever the doubts that may swirl around us and sometimes within us, may we hear the voice of Jesus. I'm with you. I'll help you to stand. I'm enough for you. In Jesus' name, amen.